0: From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is cool science radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. John Wells is out today. This morning, we speak with former National Geographic writer and journalist, Daniel Stone, who takes readers on an entertaining adventure through the deep sea, diving into the incredible culture of shipwrecks in human history. I never thought I would be so interested in shipwrecks. His new book is sinkable obsession the deep sea and the shipwreck of the titanic then in the second half of the hour best-selling author and director of the dog cognition lab at bernard college in new york alexandra horowitz she will take us through the first year of a puppy's life and all of the stages her new book is called the year of the puppy How dogs become themselves how many shipwrecks do you imagine there are in the world's oceans you'd probably be surprised at the answer at least my next guest writer daniel stone was the number is three million according to unesco which also admitted years ago that the number was mostly a guess and the real number is probably much higher Daniel Stone is a former staff writer for National Geographic and a former White House correspondent for Newsweek and the Daily Beast. He joins me now to discuss his new book all about the shipwrecks of the world. It's called *Sinkable: Obsession, the Deep Sea and the Shipwreck of the Titanic. Daniel Stone, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, let's start with obsession. The obsession of those searching to, you know, to find the shipwreck, to bring them to the surface, to possibly amass a fortune from finding the treasures uh, encased in these shipwrecks. It's an obsession. How about your obsession with studying all of these other obsessed folks? Well,
1: you're right. There are many layers of obsession with wrecks in general. People who find, like I did as a boy, that wrecks are like time capsules. They're just these like mini postcards of a former era that you can sometimes see and sometimes even swim to. Then there's the people, you know, who go out and search for wrecks, some for cultural value, like finding the Titanic, or some for financial value, like finding old Spanish ships laden with gold, of which there are still many to be found. Uh, There are people who obsess over an individual shipwreck, like I chronicle in my book, and people who just love wrecks in general. So there's no shortage of Obsession when it comes to wrecks.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's fun. I think I've been snorkeling or scuba diving somewhere down on the Yucatan Peninsula, and you know, out thirty-five feet deep is a, a an old shipwreck, and and it is very interesting. How many of these have you uh, visited, and at what depth?
1: I I'm like you. I I can't go much deeper than that. You know, thirty to fifty feet. You could see a lot of wrecks on Earth especially in the Bahamas or in Florida. Water is fairly shallow. It's fairly warm. Uh, a lot of ships have sunk in those waters. Same is true in Micronesia and in the South Pacific, Vanuatu, which has some of the greatest kind of wreck graveyards from World War II. People who have harder stomachs than I do can go down maybe you know up to a few hundred feet and find really old wrecks. Problem is, once you go down deep enough, the light disappears and you can't really see what you're looking at. So the best wrecks are the shallow ones. Unfortunately, the shallow water and the sunlight are really the corrosive forces that accelerate the breakdown of wrecks. So the ones we could swim to are not the ones that are going to be around for centuries.
0: On Cool Science Radio, we love the scientific perspective. So let's take a look at some of the waters where shipwrecks are either most well-preserved, and, and I'm not maybe, t- we, you mentioned sunlight, but talking about other elements within the water that either preserves or accelerates the decay. Yeah.
1: The best possible place for a wreck to be preserved is in the Black Sea in central Eurasia. Reason why is that its salinity, its salt, is lower than the ocean salt, so salt doesn't break down those ships as fast. The Black Sea is also really deep, so after about 500 feet, it becomes pitch black. The Black Sea is about 3,000, I'm sorry, yeah, 3,000 feet deep in some places, extremely deep. So what you find in those perfect environments is wrecks as old as you know Greek and Roman era sailing ships made of wood that are perfectly preserved. In some cases, the exact carvings as the day that they sank. This would not be possible in almost any other ocean environment anywhere in the world. And uh, for archaeologists, the Black Sea is the best. The worst, as you mentioned, is in shallow water. Uh, it's in places like Florida. It's in the South Pacific, around islands, uh, on coral reefs. Uh, sun and salt water are the two most corrosive forces on planet Earth. Uh, and given enough time, usually not much time, they will break down anything. It's funny
0: when you mention salt I just think of to our winters around uh in Utah we have a you know unlimited supply of salt around the salt lake and we know how it ruins our cars oh yeah it, it rusts through
1: holes in the cars so we, we know
0: that about decay and salt about corrosion because I know
1: you're interested in science and your listeners too uh corrosion is one of the worst factors uh, on planet Earth. I mean, it affects everything. And it is also the worst enemy that the American military has. Uh, The US Navy spends uh, more than $2 billion every year just fighting rust on its ships, uh, which break down ships faster and faster as years go by. So for these giant destroyers and the biggest ships in the US Navy, they have a working lifespan that we're trying to constantly extend because they cost so much. And it's a fight against rust that is uh, rust is the the more elusive and punishing enemy than than almost anything else that the U.S. military does. Mm. Constant battle.
0: Yeah, Um, I believe about two and a half miles deep off the coast of Newfoundland, a portion of well, what portion is it that has been raised of the Titanic?
1: Uh, very little of the actual ship structure has been raised, and the reason why <clears throat> is that the ship sank in two pieces. It sank at a, a you know fairly high velocity, almost thirty miles per hour, and it it crashed into the seafloor almost like a missile, and it kind of exploded. It exploded into these great debris fields. So to salvage the ship, as a lot of people wanted to do throughout the twentieth century, that I write about in my book, uh, was not really possible. There's no real structure to it. One engineer told me it would be like raising, you know, the the twin towers after they fell. There's there's not much structure to it. Um, however, engineers and excavators have pulled up thousands of artifacts, uh, books, and plates, and and ceiling fixtures, lights, and boots from passengers. And a lot of those are kept in, you know, privately owned collections that are sent between museum exhibitions all over the world for people to see and touch. And especially for field trip students to go and kind of ignite a new generation of of titanic fever.
0: (laughs) Much like uh, you grow up. You grew up having. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you think captures the. The interest for people of about the Titanic. I When your book came into the radio station, um, one of the staff members there s- sent me an email immediately and said, can I have this book? I'm obsessed with the Titanic. What creates that obsession?
1: Great question. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I think I finally landed on the answer, <clears throat> which is the Titanic is not that unique among shipwrecks. uh, Many ships had been built very large before. Many ships were considered unsinkable. Many ships carried rich people and many ships had hit icebergs for decades before the Titanic. But what was different was a weird quirk of math, of numbers that about 1500 people died, but 700 people lived. And those 700 were mostly young women and children who lived another 50, 60, 70 years telling and retelling the story of that night. And that storytelling is really what kept the story alive, enough to be uh, made into a movie called A Night to Remember in the 1950s, and eventually James Cameron's movie, Titanic, in the 1990s. And along the way, dozens of books and TV specials and documentaries and and even musical theater, right? And at each point, it's reinvented for a new generation. Uh, There's something about the story itself that even when you know how it ends, right? We all know how the story ends. You still can't get enough. And I think that explains the phenomenon in the 1990s, certainly when I was a teenager, that when the movie came out, not only did we go see it in theaters, but we went to see it multiple times, over and over and over. It was three hours long. You'd go over and over because you just couldn't get enough. That's so
0: true. <laughs> well, I will be giving the book over to that staff member. Great. Debbie, she's going to be so excited. But you explore so many different shipwrecks in your book. Did your um, interest or your biggest shipwreck obsession change from pre-writing the book to, to now?
1: I I underestimated how many fascinating shipwrecks there are in the world. I thought there were a few North stars, kind of the Titanic, the Lusitania, the Endurance. There are dozens more that kind of have equally enrapturing components to them. One is called the Warata, which is Australia's Titanic, that basically has the same story as the Titanic and just didn't get kind of the big media push that the Titanic did. Um, Another is kind of valuable for its... Uh, it's Financial Hall, a, a ship called the F- Flor de la Mar, a Portuguese ship that sank in 1511, still missing, believed to have about two billion, with a B, dollars in gold on it. And so you have all of these wrecks that don't have the fame and the, you know, the, the celebrity to them, but are still kind of these fascinating uh, points of, of mystery and intrigue and money uh, still still in our oceans.
0: I remember, I think it was about 30, 35 years ago when the Atocha was, um, when the treasure was salvaged or harvested or however you call it, and my father was really... obsessed with just reading about it and i remember there being all of these complications surrounding who does it belong to once it's at the bottom of the sea so how does that work in terms of who owns it you know all of these questions that that surround who gets the treasure
1: good question and the atosha is the perfect ship to reference so for your listeners the atosha a spanish galleon it sank sometime in the 15th century with hundreds of millions of dollars of gold, and it was found, I believe, in 1975 by a gentleman named Mel Fisher, a kind of wacky shipwreck hunter in Florida. And uh, you know, he he finds it, and it sparks this instant question that you asked: of who owns this thing? Right? Ships are are very legally complicated, right? They could be built in one country, they could sail to another country. It could be carrying goods of multiple other countries and holding citizens of many other countries. So you have these jurisdictional questions immediately. With a ship like the Atocha, Spain claimed part of the haul, the, the as did Colombia, which claimed you know that they took our gold and they were sailing back to Spain with it. Mel Fisher, the guy who found it, said, wait a minute, that was hundreds of years ago. I'm the guy who found it and a lot of his investors. had funded his his expedition said wait a minute mel we're the ones who helped you find it uh this is a very colorful wreck because mel fisher uh actually took a lot of the treasure for himself he left the country with it it became this giant legal you know question mess uh, that eventually got sorted out by the courts but uh for a lot of wrecks you know as long as they're missing nobody cares But as soon as they're found especially if they're containing something super valuable like gold or diamonds you instantly have these vulturing sessions where everyone tries to produce a document claiming that part of it is theirs or they owned it or they deserve at least uh, a piece of it before it's divvied up
0: it's kind of like the gold rush you know back in the day and and mining these precious metals and gems the the difference, though, is it's pretty hard to cordon off a shipwreck or to you know put up a police line, do not cross around a shipwreck, isn't it? Or how heavily are they guarded? And if so, how are they guarded?
1: Yeah, shipwrecks are almost never guarded. It's almost impossible to, especially if they're deep. Just to be able to stay above the exact site without drifting is is only newly possible based on new technology developed by the, the drilling, you know, in the mineral exploration industry. People do steal shipwrecks, but not the way that you think rather than going down and pulling up a giant ship, which is very difficult to do, let alone in the dark of night. What most shipwrecks get stolen is piece by piece. Uh, and this happens a lot in the Indian Ocean around Indonesia, Malaysia, a lot of poor countries, especially in East Africa, that find value in steel, right? Scrap steel that could be worth fifty to hundred dollars a ton, or, or maybe more. They'll go down. They'll send divers, very dangerous, and sometimes they'll steal battle cruisers, you know, big ships that sank, rivet by rivet, uh, and they'll pull it up. This happened. Uh, this happens today. Uh, it most recently happened in 2016. A, a group of Dutch ships that the Dutch government sent divers to go, you know, survey they just found giant craters in the mud that the ships were gone. And again, these are like ships the size of football fields. So you can imagine how many divers it took over how long to steal a wreck and turn that into some financial payday.
0: As soon as you mentioned taking steel off of a shipwreck, it made me think about people cutting catalytic converters out from under cars. Same thing, exactly. (laughs) Things that you you never would imagine that people actually do. And I'm sure you discovered a lot of those types of things in your study of shipwrecks. Uh, What is, you know, give give a favorite story about, you know, something that surprised you.
1: Yeah, I mean, every shipwreck is kind of a time capsule in itself. Um, There are wrecks, especially in the South Pacific. One is called the Calvin Coolidge. That's a World War II era wreck. You can swim through and see the kind of divers, you know, or the the sailors' old uniforms, their old beds. Very bizarre. That that surprised me too. Um, but you know what's interesting about wrecks is that there's no shortage of them from every single era, and they are, you know, they're they're stolen, they are excavated, they are found, they are lost. Some are extremely worthless, and some are extremely valuable. Uh, and there's kind of a community behind each of them. Ships have their own fan clubs, none more than the Titanic. But a lot of ships have online communities of people who really obsess about them. I have I dove in, uh, excuse the pun, to a lot of these communities in, in my book. but But boy, can you get lost in a swirl of conspiracies and mysteries and looping debates very quickly.
0: I bet. And how much murder on
1: the high seas have you, did you encounter while writing the book? Not much of that. That's more of like an older thing, you know, with, yeah. with cases like Mutiny on the Bounty or, you know, these big onboard disputes. Uh, you know, we see that much less often now. What we see now more is just poor management of ships. You know, most shipping accidents are the result of human error. And uh, I spent an afternoon once writing this book just watching videos on YouTube of shipping accidents, which happen every day all over the world involving the biggest container ships you've ever heard of. You've never heard of the giant cruise ships that sometimes, you know, sail into docks that, that kill people or wreck ships. You might remember last year when that big container ship called the Ever Given got stuck in the Suez Canal, right? That stuff happens everywhere. Uh, you know those ships sink a lot and we never hear about them the only reason that one kind of became a big international news story was because it awkwardly happened in a giant shipping lane that blocked traffic if that had happened anywhere in the world and ships could just go around it no one would have said anything we never would have heard about it
0: interesting that you bring that up and remember that was sort of in in the midst of all the supply chain woes and so often supply chain, you know, or the the fact that whatever did not show up in your mailbox that you had ordered and it was being blamed on the ship stuck in the Suez Canal. (laughs) As you researched this book, did you find that that was just a convenient scapegoat or was that, did it really disrupt supply chain in all of the ships that it blocked?
1: Uh, It it did, Uh, but it certainly was a vivid, colorful picture of what of what happens all over the world, right? It was a very clear way to illustrate whether it blocked a hundred ships from delivering your new Nikes to your doorstep, you know, no one could really track. But the fact that all of us were suddenly faced with this new, you know, colorful picture of shipping mishaps and snafus was very vivid.
0: Yeah, and also how much we depend on ships without knowing how much we depend on ships. Yeah, exactly. Um, you mentioned circling back to the floor, the Portuguese ship. Um, where where is that? I think you mentioned, but I didn't catch it.
1: The Flor de la Mar, a Portuguese ship, is currently believed to be in the waters off Sumatra, right near Indonesia. Um, it sank there again, uh, uh, more than 500 years ago. Many people have looked for it, but it's worth your time because, you know, over a billion dollars, as high as two billion dollars of gold, uh, is worth it to someone who's going to find it one day.
0: And now, with all of the technology that we have, I'm sure it has accelerated um, the the ability to survey what's there, to either raise it or harvest, salvage. Um, wh- ha- why isn't the Flor de la Mar, for example, you know, with the modern technology, being um, brought up or found?
1: It's still really hard is the short answer. Um, even when you know generally where a ship sank, ships that sink in deep water over an area that could be maybe 10 miles wide in either direction, that's 100 square miles, which you know requires an enormous amount of back and forth transecting of a ship. Mm-hmm. Um, even with modern technology, it is still easier to map Mars or the surface of any other planet than it is to map the ocean surface. For the main reason that that, the waves, the micro radio waves that we use to make land maps do not work in water. So the only way to see underwater is really with sound and sonar. Uh, We have no uniform map of the ocean floor in a detailed way. Many people have tried, but it takes a lot of money and a lot of time. And you really need a reason to do it right there. You need, you need uh, an investor to find value in that sort of research. And for most of the world, what's going on in the middle of the Atlantic or off the islands of Indonesia on the seafloor, whether it's rocks, whether it's mud, whether it's slopey or a canyon, just doesn't really matter.
0: At what depth is the deepest shipwreck?
1: Well, we know the deepest ocean depth is about seven miles deep. That's the deepest point. It's called the Challenger Deep in the middle of the Pacific, the Marianas Trench. Presumably, there are wrecks there that sank maybe during World War II, we don't know about them, there are wrecks everywhere. Uh, One of the deepest found was actually found about 10 years ago called the City of Cairo. It was one of these big expensive expeditions looking for silver. Uh, They found hundreds of millions of dollars of silver on board, which rationalized a search. It was found in the South Atlantic uh, a little more than three miles deep, and that's more than uh, just about a mile deeper than the Titanic. Wow.
0: I just think that your book is so interesting in terms of, you know, we love to if, if we are not specifically history buffs, we love to find things that turn us on to history through some other means. And I really feel like your book about shipwrecks does that. And you know, did it do that for you in the hugest of ways?
1: Yeah, I I still am fascinated by these stories. And I'm also fascinated how many more there are and are still being made every day. So there are the famous ones we've all heard about. But I think it's in the B and C list shipwrecks that have the richest stories.
0: The book is *Sinkable: Obsession, the Deep Sea, and the Shipwreck of the Titanic. My guest is Daniel Stone. Daniel, I've been watching your face throughout this entire interview, and I see the most visual delight written all over it. So I know you just loved writing this book.
1: I did. I had a lot of fun writing it, and I hope your listeners have fun reading it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me on Cool Science Radio. Thank you, Lynn. And again, Daniel Stone, the book Sinkable. My next guest is best-selling author Alexandra Horowitz, who runs the dog cognition lab at Barnard College and who literally observes dogs for a living. Her scientific research began over two decades ago. She's the author also of several bestsellers, including Inside of a Dog and Being a Dog and Our Dogs Ourselves, along with others. Her new book is all about the puppy and all of its stages of development and cognition. It's called The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. Alexander Horowitz, welcome to Cool Science Radio.
2: Thanks so much, Lynn.
0: Well, first of all, I know you live in New York City. I don't know where, but I just have to ask you, you know, coming from this mountain town where we have, you know, 500 miles of trails, Mm. most of which we can take our dogs on, I'm wondering what it's like, how dog friendly is it in New York City?
2: You know, we're missing the mountains and the 500 miles of trails, but I live uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is a, you know, a long island and either side of our neighborhood are quite large parks, you know, the 840 acre Central Park and Riverside Park along the river. And both these places are replete with dogs. You know, um, there are lots of places, dog parks, and also areas where dogs can run off leash or on leash. And I think in some ways, living with dogs, as I have in both city and non-city locations, there are some virtues of a city, including that there's a lot, a lot of socialization between dogs in the city. and owners or or dog people, as I like to say, are kind of obliged to take the dogs out, you know, regularly through the day versus some of the places I've lived um, where dogs are left in yards alone for a lot of the day. So it's a different life for a dog. It's not for every dog, I suppose, but I think it, it can be an excellent life.
0: Right. So I'm wondering if in like Central Park, if there are off-leash areas or is it all on-leash Uh, How does that work? Yeah,
2: there are hours when you can have dogs off leash um, before nine in the morning, for instance, in Riverside and Central Park. Ah. So that's a time when lots of dog people are congregating and their dogs are frolicking around. And then the park is kind of left to the non-dog people um, for the middle of the day when, when they have to be on leash. And then again, in the evenings, they're off leash hours again.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, it's good to get a little picture of what that is like. Well, yeah. <laughs> so your your book is about the first year of a puppy's life, and literally from birth, which mm. you observed um, with what became your pup called Quid, Quiddity or, yeah. or Quid for short. And what a great name! And thank um, you. I, it's funny with every dog that I've had and we usually get them from the shelter when they're still puppies, but we don't know what that first you know six weeks or whatever it is looks like in their life. and I've so often wondered that how important is that first you know five, six weeks for a puppy?
2: You know, Lynn, that has been my experience as well. I've never known the early weeks of my dogs lives you know i got them many months or sometimes years into their lives and you really wonder about their history their biography you feel like you know i missed some of you how did you become yourself it must have happened in this time um and so this is partly what i wanted to remedy in this book is to to witness that time and then continually have a relationship with one of the pups um and one of the surprises for me it was a fabulous experience in all respects, and I loved coordinating what I was seeing in the puppies with the science of early development. But one of the surprises was that those the, those first weeks are very important. They still don't completely explain in the kind of way we might expect it to who this puppy, Quiddity, was going to turn out to be. Right? It wasn't like I could just take a little bit of knowledge of her genes and then witness what she what her environment was what she was exposed to, and then kind of come out with so this is what the personality of this dog is going to be, she's still, you know, like, um, not a math equation. (laughs) And even though that should be obvious, it was it did feel like a little bit of a surprise, you feel like if you witness that first weeks, which are so important, if you give them the stimulation they need, then you can kind of reliably get the result. But that is of course not the case.
0: One of the reasons I love dogs is because I love how cuddly they are and how much they need us. Mm. However, you'll find a dog every now and again that doesn't really want to have that affection showered on them or you know doesn't even really seem to be interested in being pet. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, does that is do they come into the world with traits like this, or is that something that is nurtured in those first weeks?
2: There absolutely is evidence that in the first weeks, what they're exposed to, especially from week four on, um, and that includes not just you know what people or other dogs or cats or birds, but also um, if they're in contact with those animals, or in, with people, or you know, loud sounds they hear, or other sensations they feel, then they'll be more likely to be open to that, receptive to that later. Um, so if they're not exposed to being pets, being handled, you know, like manhandling really, in the, as a little puppy, they might not be that necessarily predisposed to be pet a lot or cuddled with. Um, They might put up with it, which is one of the things about dogs that makes them easy to live with, that they Mm -hmm. actually are really flexible in the range of behaviors they will endure. They might not seek it out for sure. So it could be traced to their early exposures.
0: And so you're looking at all of the stages of puppyhood, which you say is really equivalent to infancy, childhood, young adolescence, and teenagerhood Mm -hmm. all in the first year. Wow, it's no wonder they sleep 16 hours a day
2: (laughs) there are a lot of analogies to be made to the developmental science of humans and the the reason i think we overlook it is partly because most of us come into a dog's life at a kind of random age midway through maybe their first year Uh, maybe the earliest we get a dog is eight or 16 weeks Um, but maybe you wind up with a one-year-old If you have a one-year-old, you have like a 30-year-old adolescent on your hands. Even knowing about those stages helps make sense of some of the behavior that we might see during that time. Just knowing the names of the stages, knowing that there is an adolescence and that dogs can be teenagers really helps in starting to explain what might be happening to them at that time and the behaviors they're showing us.
0: Yes, we equate the birth of a puppy to a, the birth of a human baby, we curate or orchestrate the birthing room so they a baby comes into the world. It's not too bright, it's not too noisy. It's the most peaceful entrance in a in the midst of a relatively violent sort of thing going through the birth canal, being born. <laughs> Do breeders also orchestrate that sort of thing. Like, is that important in the life of a of a dog?
2: The birth, uh, controlling the birth environment, I don't think so. Um, Dogs are are born completely blind and also completely deaf. Their ear canals are closed and their ears are sort of folded over the openings. Their only real experience of the world is olfactory and and tactile, so they can smell their way to mom and kind of (laughs) like stumble over there. Actually, they don't have that many motor skills either. So I don't think, I mean it is chaotic, um, but the mom has control of it, and there's no need at that moment to make sure they don't have an overstimulation.
0: Right. A lot depends then on how the mother is receiving. And we know that that animal mothers sometimes sometimes they embrace their their offspring and sometimes they shun them for some reason. What was your observation of that? You're right.
2: There absolutely are different. Um, levels of mom and you I don't know that one could tell ahead of time, how the mother was going to react to their um, to, you know, suddenly the birth of four or five, or in in the case of quids litter, 11 dogs suddenly appearing that she is responsible for Um, the lit, the births, I saw the moms took to it, they did all the things they need to do assist with the birth, eat the placenta guide clean off the pups, guide them to a nipple, even help ones who kind of fall off uh, a nipple when they're sleeping, you know, back into the place where they can be fed. And they really were vigilant over their pups for the first couple of weeks. What I did see a little bit of a difference in is, is how they start to react then. Moms will differ in how early they start weaning their pups off of their milk and that might be them just not lying down to be nursed from but like standing up making it more difficult uh, you have like this <laughs> this mom and, and little tiny pups like trying to jump up and grab the nipples um and then they start in all cases they start to a little bit scold the pups and like leave them alone a little bit more and they do, Moms do differ in when that might happen. Uh, is it four weeks? Is it six or seven weeks? Eventually, though, they all kind of dissociate from the pups. You know, they're not—they're not like um, a human family where then that's—you know—that's it. We're going to be with the mom for you know many, many, many years. Instead, they kind of let their pups be independent, and that's convenient for dogs who live in human families because that's often the time that a pup winds up being taken into a completely new family that maybe has no dogs around.
0: I think we all wonder how traumatic it is and if there really is the perfect age to separate a pup mm-hmm. from its mom to come into a new home. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and there is, there's some, Very interesting research about when we find pups most cute. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they actually asked people to rate the cuteness of the puppies at every, you know, at a week, at a day, at four weeks, at eight weeks, and eight weeks is sort of like their peak cuteness quotient. Mm -hmm. And that is about the time that a lot of um, researchers and breeders think that it's a good time to separate from mom because the mom has started to has really distanced herself from her pups. Uh, which isn't to say that she wouldn't notice they're missing, right? But uh, she's prepared to to be apart from them. She's prepared herself and she's prepared them. So while it could be traumatic in lots of ways, you know, they go from living and sleeping among their litter, always touching another dog, for instance, and following other dogs out into the world, to maybe being completely isolated in a human household. I don't think it's because of the loss of their mom per se.
0: Mm, yeah, just the shock of being in a in a new place. I remember our dog who we had, Jack, who we had until he was almost 16. Mm. The best, you know, that li- that once in a lifetime dog. But when we yeah. adopted him from the shelter, he was a little cute little puppy, but he hid behind the couch. In fact, we went looking all over the neighborhood for him because we thought he got out, couldn't uh, find him. He, uh. he it had this practice of hiding behind and underneath the couch because he just didn't know what to do. And he ended up being the most social dog ever, but it was just that shock.
2: I yeah. I was very struck too at how much when um, I observed these puppies. So the one litter from which we did adopt a pup, I observed um, a little more than once a week for the first eight weeks of their life. And when I would come to the foster's house, uh, who was fostering the mom and pups along with several other animals, um, the pups were always like in a pile, you know? They would sleep in a pile on top of each other. They sought each other out. They were always physically touching or around each other, following each other, biting each other. And it I mean, that really struck me because imagine going from that way of living to like being by yourself. Um, without maybe crate trained, like is very popular to do today where you're sort of like left with something warm or soft, but really like isolated. That I think is a bigger shock than we really account for. And I think we could do a better job anticipating that they're going to need, you know, more contact. Maybe that your pup was even just looking for like some of a close space, right? The feeling of being surrounded. So I think that's, a big shift for all puppies.
0: Alexandra Horowitz is the author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. And Alexandra, you divide the book up into sort of three parts, this nine-week period that you were, or eight-week period that you were observing the puppies from birth, but you actually start with gestation, week week zero, <laughs> I guess. Um, and then part two, the second birth, which is I'm assuming it's it's sort of that period that you're coming into a new home. Right. And then part three is quid years. And so it's <laughs> getting into that older, the dog that's going to be yours for hopefully a really long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, going back to those first eight weeks, quid was one of 11. Why did you choose quid and are you now convinced that puppies come into the world with their own personalities, or are they developed to a certain degree?
2: I was so uh, overwrought with the choice of which puppy we should <laughs> adopt because, unlike most situations where we just have, you know, a few minutes really with the dog before we decide if we're going to adopt them or not, you know, I I think I've spent up to like two or three hours at a shelter. Before deciding adopting a dog. And many, many people would come in, adopt a dog, and leave in that time. Here, I was seeing them for many, many, many hours. And I was getting to know each of them and seeing as they started to diverge in their personality. And I wasn't sure which was like the right pup for our family, which would fit who would fit the best. And in fact, then the foster decided for us, she sort of got to know the people who are potential adopters and suggested a few pups to us um, that she thought would match our family given you know we lived with two big dogs we had a cat i had a 10 year old and still do have the 10 year old and the cat anyway the two dogs have passed so we didn't actually choose her she was sort of chosen and maybe that was best right that uh because i don't think there was any way to perfect that choice i do think her personality develops you know through the interactions and experiences she have she has in their life. There were clearly divergences, though, from a few weeks into the life between the puppies in just terms of their tendencies. There was a dog who was more attuned to the other dogs on the premises and would sort of follow and want to engage with the other dogs. There were dogs who just every time I came just you know went right for my lap and and wanted to just snuggle and sit on my lap. There were barky dogs there were dogs who were really (laughs) bitey, you know, all of them are bitey, but some were really bitey. So you see that they're, you can see that they just have individuals personality differences, which is should not be unexpected. Um, but nothing so extreme that you, you thought that it, that would really be a difficult dog to live with just like slight differences that started to mark them in their early days.
0: I find that, I think it was one of your last books that came out we got had here at the at the studio at the radio station. And I, I've thought about this that people they so hunger for explanations of why their dogs are the way that they mm-hmm. are, because mm-hmm. obviously our dogs have no language. And yet they're such a crucial component of our everyday lives it's first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is talk to our dogs or pet our <laughs> dogs and it's the last thing we do before we go to bed so i'm just wondering about how you became convinced wow well, i'm going to start writing some books about this cuz people really want to know this stuff was it your own interest or was it people out there saying yeah tell me more tell me more
2: uh, you know it was a little bit of both uh i wrote inside of a dog in 2007 and at that time this field that i'm in which is at the time was really burgeoning called dog cognition or canine cognition was pretty new but some of the research was getting picked up in the press and people were really hungry for answers as to as you say explanations of why their dog does the thing they do and science was kind of like starting to provide kinds of answers even though the scientific questions are not always drawn from dog people questions you know they're more drawn from psychological questions and I realized that just being a researcher in dogs and starting to observe dogs from a scientific perspective changed my relationship with my own dog at the time, Pumpernickel, hugely. <laughs> it changed how I saw her behavior, you know, what I wanted to provide for her in terms of stimulation at home and on walks. I just, I was radical change in my perspective. And I thought this research will also begin to like, uh, sate some of the hunger that other people who live with dogs have about, you know, what's going on in their minds. And I think also when that happens and they start to look at their dogs a little differently, we'll change their relationship with their dog for the better. So that was what drove me to propose that first book. And I think it really did hit a chord in that exact respect, just as it had with me.
0: Wow. I'm wondering what was the thing that most made you change your behavior with your dog with pumpernickel after learning certain things that you didn't know before your research?
2: In the fact that she lives in, a, she lived in an olfactory world that all dogs primary sensory modality is, is smell. That was something I had not fully considered. So we all know dogs are good smellers, but it's a different thing to say All right, so what does this world look like? If you can see it, to be sure, you know, they have decent vision and they have two color vision, they can see motion really well. But if smell is the way you're seeing the world, what does that mean in terms of like where things are or what they know about who's passed by or how they interact with us, you know, how they greet us, when they recognize us, what they want to do on a walk? All those things are really changed if you. If you start to imagine them from a dog's a smelly a smeller's point of view, rather than from our point of view, not just as humans with like different motivations and interests and abilities, but also as visual creatures as we are, just thinking that the world is how we see it and there's nothing else kind of to be noticed. That changed a lot about how I dealt with Pumpernickel and, and what I tried to provide for her and what I appreciated about her.
0: So I'm dying to know if you became way more patient as you're taking the dog for a walk when they stop to smell every single
2: thing. completely completely. I think really? that that is like, you know, looking out the window when you're in a car and you you know, what if somebody just jerked your head away every time you wanted to look <laughs> out the window? You know, that's what's there. This they're looking at the world, looking at also information about who's passed by recently and it does take some patience. It takes like an empathetic leap, I think, to say, okay, you know, my dog finds this interesting. I don't see anything. I don't find it interesting, but nonetheless, she does. And so I'm just gonna hang out here and watch her avid interest in in that smell and and endure it. To me, I went through the patience, the patient's wall, and just became fascinated with it. Um, so at least one of dog, one of our walks with uh, our current puppy every day is more like a smell walk where she can kind of choose the route. And if she wants to linger at some smells, um, that's fine by me. Mm,
0: I like that. Well, I too now will be more patient. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I wanted to, I wanted to ask about that first year and about shifting their behavior. There are these things. So my current dog, Oscar just goes crazy in the first hundred yards of a walk and he wants to Mm. jump and, and nip. And if you're on your, you know, mountain bike, if you're going for a little bike ride, Mm. he wants to bite your tires and that sort of thing. And partially you excuse that behavior as, Oh, it's in his breed. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you haven't made these corrections within the first year, do you just have to live with it or, you know, how much can be influenced because you've really looked at this first year.
2: Mm. Yes, they continue to learn. It's just not as easy. It's sort of like learning a second language. If you if you were exposed to that second language, like another way to interact with the world, when you're a baby, you pick it up. You can also learn the second language when you're 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or onward, but it's just more difficult. It's a little bit more explicit and step-by-step. And your one-year-old can learn things absolutely, including not to lunge after you know, passing bikes. Um, but I, I also think there's something one can do for that kind of behavior, because you just laid out for me exactly when it happens, you know, in the first part of the walk. And so it's like this high energy moment before the dog can kind of calm themselves and get into the rhythm of the walk, where they just need to like explode with, things to do, you know, when they see things moving, and they want to chase them. And that excitement, if you feel like you could maybe run that out in some other way, you know, maybe by literally running them somewhere, or having a tug toy, and you're really tugging the whole way in that first minute, maybe it would just you would just get through that section of overexcitement, and then on to the part where they're actually being like pretty cooperative walking companions. Um, So I'd recommend that kind of thing. And also seeing that, you know, that this is still like an adolescent behavior and eventually they will grow out of that as well.
0: The book is The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. My guest is Alexandra Horowitz. What a great conversation, Alexandra. Thanks for joining me on Cool Science Radio.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City.